0: mentioned uh, right before lunch about um, one way that it's described in the Buddhist tradition is that we're consuming all the time. So in terms of finding a deeper kind of happiness in our worlds of consumption, world of employment, world of money, success, relationship, It's not so much about whether we are consuming. You know, we're consuming, in a way, we're consuming experience moment by moment. So it's not just food that we're drawing or that we're consuming, but the Buddha would say we're consuming sense experience or sense contact. And there's volition, desire. And there's consciousness, So consuming or nutriment is the actual way it's translated. It's like life is coming out of these things. You know, it's coming out of food. It's coming out of sense contact. It's coming out of volition, desire. It's coming out of consciousness. And that's just a given. So the real question in terms of uh, understanding happiness or unhappiness is how is this consumption happening? There's a central teaching in the way the Buddha taught set up this human predicament. It's not about being sensitive. It's not about what we're sensitive to. It's about what arises in conjunction. You know, being sensitive and having experience, you know, this sensitivity of the mind is having experience and that of course can't be avoided you know as long as there's life there's going to be sensitivity having experience having sense contact the question is what arises in conjunction with that sensitivity that contact <clears throat> this is Thich Nhat han he says we all experience moments when we feel lonely sad, empty, frustrated, or afraid. We fill up our feelings with a movie or a sandwich. We buy things to suppress our pain, despair, anger, and depression. We find a way to consume in the hopes that it will obliviate the feelings. Even if a TV show isn't interesting, we still watch it. We think anything is better than experiencing this malaise. The ill being in us We have lost sight of the reality that we already have all the conditions we need for our own happiness. A little later, he says, according to the Buddha, happiness is simple. If we go home to the present moment, we realize that we have more than enough to be happy right here and now. All the wonders of life are in us and around us. This realization can help us release our craving, anger, fear the more we consume the more we bring in the toxins that feed our craving anger and ignorance we need to do two things to return to mindful awareness first we can look deeply into the nutriment that is feeding our craving examining the source no animal or plant can survive without food our craving just like our love or our suffering also needs food to survive. If our craving refuses to go away, it's because we keep feeding it daily. So, what are we feeding our craving or this pattern of struggling that leads to suffering in our jobs, in our choices of consumption, in our relationship to money? What are we feeding it daily? he ends this section by saying once we have identified what feeds our craving we can cut off the source of nutriment and and our craving will wither so he goes on to talk about it's not just starving the craving but also feeding the wholesome qualities so that's what I want to spend a little time talking about in the middle of that we'll do a Uh, Gratitude Guided Meditation, Contentment Meditation. And then, after talking about how to starve craving, how to feed wholesome ways of relating, because, like I said, we're going to have contact, we're going to have volition, we're going to be in this, you know, the way that Thich Nhat Hanh talks about consciousness, it's not like our consciousness, it's this general soup you know we're in right now we're in a sense sharing consciousness we're affecting each other by this shared mental space I guess you could say so the question is how are we going to relate to it how are we going to skillfully negotiate this world of sensitivity how can we cultivate what allows for uh, wisdom how can we undermine or starve the um, tendency to take pain personally and to construct the sense of lack that we neurotically pursue, try to fill. So we construct the sense of a hole that needs to be filled. And then we neurotically struggle to fill this imaginary thing that we've constructed. And of course it doesn't work. This is, uh, just so you know, Thich Nhat has a comment on each of the five precepts. I'll go through them in a minute. But this is his, his comments on the precept about consumption. Usually it's just translated as refrain from intoxicating the mind. He says, aware that true happiness is rooted in peace, solidity, freedom, and compassion, and not in wealth or fame, we determine not to take as the aim of our life, fame, profit, wealth, or sensual pleasures, nor to accumulate wealth while millions are hungry and dying. We are committed to living simply and sharing our time, energy, and material resources with those in need. We will practice mindful consuming, not using alcohol, drugs, or any other products that bring toxins into our, our own and the collective body and consciousness. So this is what I think we can, you know, use some teaching or some pointing. So it's not just about starving the tendency, the neurotic tendency to crave, but it's about watering, cultivating wholesome ways of consuming. So I'm gonna go through some of the the way that Buddha talks about um, protecting the mind from this habit of creating a sense of lack. How do we do that? And it's like he's created a set of road signs. Ultimately, the way we go beyond being neurotic is we're willing to feel what it feels like to be alive in an, an ephemeral world. Right? A world that's alive with change, alive with insecurity, alive with uncertainty. So, when we're, uh, when we no longer have to defend ourselves, then we don't need much other support. It's not like we need other instructions. But initially, we don't trust, we don't even know how to open to that pain necessarily. It's so well defended by neurotic habits that it's not so easy for us just to say yes to being a human being in this wild, uncertain, insecure, beautiful, and painful life we have. We don't know how to open up to that and just let that be. So we need instructions. So I'll just go through some of the lists that relate to right livelihood, right action, One of the first and most important in the Buddhist tradition, you know, the Buddha was really great at addressing people where they're at. So if people, from a relative point of view, just want success, you know, want a successful family life, successful employment life, want to go to heaven, you know, like be reborn in a really great place, the Buddha would help them you know he would tell them what he knows he wouldn't say no no you don't want that stuff that's all ephemeral it comes and goes he would teach them how to be happy in this relative sense because it's it's when we actually experience some of this relative happiness where we have some success we find love we find some success in work we have enough money to have a decent shelter and decent food and things like that. It's when we have some of that success, it's then when we can understand that that underlying feeling of lack hasn't gone away. I mean, just think about how many things we have now we used to think I need that in order to be happy. But now we have it. You know, but there's still that uneasiness in the heart as if we still need to get something so what's that about so it is helpful that's why you don't see a lot of people in in extreme poverty who are interested in this kind of a spiritual path unfortunately because it's just so compelling when we're in extreme poverty or some kind of medical crisis it's not an easy time There are exceptions to this, but generally it's not an easy time to look at the pain. Sometimes being cornered by life, medical crisis, poverty, loss of job, loss of partner, can be uh, used in that way because there's, in a sense, nowhere to turn, so the heart opens to the pain. But, you know, the heart's pretty creative about avoiding pain. So if it can find a way, it usually will take the way of avoiding the pain. Blaming the pain on somebody else is a way to avoid opening to the pain. Getting angry, feeling betrayed by life—somebody mentioned earlier today—is a way. So, first, what we want to understand is like, well, how do we, how do we interact with this world? How do we work with it? And this is all about cause and effect. You know, the Buddha isolated the three main causes for success. It's not necessarily what you think, like being stingy <laughs> or, you know, manipulating others or taking whatever you can get your hands on, um, beating up the weaker people. He says that the three bases of meritorious action, you know, in Buddhism, merit, merit means it's, it's really talking about the force of cause and effect. This force of cause and effect can't actually be broken. It's like a law. You know, when it's like in physics, you know, there's that principle of conservation. You know, if you throw, if you if you exert a force of some kind, it's going to have an effect. A force cannot not have an effect. So it's the same thing with any action. And so merit is just talking about actions that have effects, effects that lead to happiness in a mind. So the way the Buddha understood his mind, and we can understand our mind, you know, ill effect is an effect of contraction. You know, so something the mind does that leads to things getting tight would be a negative effect. It would hurt. The mind would suffer because of that, the result of getting contracted, getting tight, And any force, action, that leads to the release of the mind, the release of the heart, we'd call wholesome, or skillful, or meritorious. So the three basis of meritorious action, the sort of initial list, is dana sila bhavana so these are three pali words dana you might recognize is generosity or liberality it's a non-stinginess of the heart so you see that actions that require the heart to let go of stinginess have that effect it leads to the heart feeling more and more released it makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's, it's so obvious when you talk about it in this way. So it's not like... Well, the Buddha wouldn't say that giving, being generous, is um, theoretically good or, you know, good in some abstract moral sense. He's saying directly, energetically, if the heart is generous, it is healing the contraction leading onward toward release of the heart. It will be absolutely, unavoidably experienced as pleasant and wholesome for living beings. So it's one of the basis of merit to be generous in any way you can, with your time, with your spirit, with your money. The second is sila. So one is uh, giving and the other is restraining that's what sila in a sense in a technical sense sila often translated as ethical conduct it's really about restraining the mind the heart from acting out its anger its aversion its irritation its greed so the heart wants to get tight with greed wants to get tight with irritation and aversion right but the heart restrains itself no honey we're not going to do that it's not helpful it doesn't hurt it doesn't help anybody so the first two one is through letting go that's dana generosity and the other is through restraining but it's not a restraining like i have to be good it's like we're restraining the heart from tightening itself up you know don't dwell in aversion cuz you're going to get all tight Don't dwell in greed because you're going to get all tight. Don't seek revenge because you're going to get all tight. You're going to make your heart tight and you're going to create the causes and conditions for other people's hearts to get tight. So again, this should sound very pragmatic. Like, if the wealth we're seeking is the heart's release, the freedom of the heart to participate fully in life freely in life, without the weight of fear, the contraction of anger, the contraction of greed, then generosity and wholesome restraint, restraining from harming, basically, is what sila means. We're restraining ourselves from harming ourselves and others. And then the third basis for merit is bhavana, which means mental development. We're training the mind to... Basically, training the mind about the mind. It's like the mind needs to understand the mind in order to be skillful. So this makes a lot of sense, too, because basically, bhavana, this mental training or mental development is instead of just observing cause and effect out there around us, I notice when I insult Tom... He doesn't want to talk to me anymore. That's one way of understanding cause and effect. But the other is to understand it in my mind. When I have that inclination to insult somebody, I notice I get tight. So then I'm just understanding cause and effect in the internal world. This is bhavana. This is mental development. Is understanding how the mind works in terms of cause and effect. What leads to the heart's release? What leads to the mind and heart getting all type, bound up, confused, confused by its being bound up, entangled. And the more entangled and bound up the mind is, the pain of that being bound up and entangled, that pain is confusing. It's confusing the mind so it doesn't, one, understand that it's all bound up, and two, it doesn't understand how the unwinding happens. So the mind keeps doing things that further binds up the mind because it thinks that's going to lead to unbinding. So like, for example, if I'm really hurting, I'm all bound up, you know, some difficult interaction at work or in life. So I think by thinking about it, worrying about it, complaining to people about it, that that's somehow going to cause some of that feeling of being bound up and entangled to go away. But actually, of course, it just reinforces the experience of being bound up tight. And then the Buddha has a longer list of meritorious actions. This is often the case. So the three primary ones, generosity, sila, or restraining from harming living beings, including ourselves, and developing the mind, developing the understanding of the mind, and cause and effect, what's... Causes the mind to get bound up, what allows the mind to unwind. And then, in addition to these three, so there's a total of ten um, reverence, <clears throat> so being devoted, being respectful of what is actually worthy of respect, like people who are wise, they're worthy of respect. Service, which is just another form of generosity transference of merit which is another form of generosity which is basically saying whatever goodness that arises from my actions I happily share them with you mm-hmm. so we're, we're not like hoarding our own goodness you know I've been so generous and I'm keeping this for myself you know, but we want whatever goodness we're setting in our life to be a benefit, a, a positive benefit for others rejoicing in others merit This is very a liberal state of the mind where we're happy for other people's success. Somebody is living a really wholesome life, being generous, being kind, not acting out their anger, and that makes us happy. That is a meritorious action. When we are happy because of the happiness, the goodness of others, it's a powerful it causes a powerful transformation in the heart. It sets in motion release when we can take joy in other people's happiness expounding wise teachings listening to wise teachings these that make sense it's kind of clarifying our view at least intellectually and then the last number 10 is straightening one's right view so it's basically integrating the doctrine the teachings that we've been studying listening to or expounding Now the uh, The other thing I wanted to mention is uh, just the Buddha has some very specific things to say about livelihood, and I thought that maybe it wouldn't be right to have a workshop on livelihood without at least mentioning a few of them so i 'm going to just run through some of them and again they they make sense and think of these as road maps or road signs better um, so as we 're living our life and we realize you know we're still in that place where we're feeling the pain of vulnerability, the th- pain of not having enough, the pain of having less than others, the pain of knowing that we can't count on what we do have. Our job is uncertain. Our success, our wealth is uncertain. Will the stock market crash? Are you content to earn one percent money less than one percent in money market for the rest of your life? Will we ever get enough for retirement if that's all we earn? Do we risk keeping in the stock market? I mean, these are the kind of uh, experiences that we're all having. So, and it brings up a lot of fear. So, as long as we're in this world, it's nice to have some roadmaps. Now, these are common sense, just like the, the three bases of merit of giving and restraining from harming others and understanding the mind better in terms of cause and effect. This makes a lot of sense. In terms of right livelihood, the Buddha uh, teaches our wealth should be gained by legal means, peacefully without coercion or violence, honestly not by trickery or deceit. One should acquire it in ways that do not entail harm or suffering for others. And he specifically mentions five uh, careers, I guess, (laughs) that we should avoid, dealing in weapons, dealing in living beings, including raising animals for slaughter, slave trade, prostitution, refraining from meat production, butchery, poisons, the production of poisons, and the production of intoxicants. There's one particular sutta that I thought was interesting. Um, see. This is a person came to see the Buddha. He says to the Buddha, we are lay people enjoying sensuality, right? Because, you know, the monks and nuns, they lived a pretty austere life, living crowded with spouses and children, using kasa fabrics, I'm not sure what that is, and sandalwood, wearing garlands, scents and creams, handling gold and silver. May the Blessed One teach the Dhamma for those like us, for our happiness and well-being in this life and for our happiness and well-being in lives to come. Don't teach me about emptiness, I just want to know how to be happy in the world that I'm living in. So, like I said earlier, the Buddha was willing to go there with people, especially with lay people. He even did it once with a monk, who was just really frustrated with his practice and having a lot of sensual craving, sexual craving, I think. And So the Buddha said, sure, you could take off your robes and go back to lay life and get married, you know, and whatever. <clears throat> how do you do this practice and you'll go to a heavenly realm, you know, and you'll have every sense pleasure you'd ever desire. <laughs> so he got excited, <laughs> started to practice, and then he got really embarrassed for being so greedy. <clears throat> and all of that and seeing all of that really helped his practice mature. I think the other monks made fun of him for being so greedy. I think that's what really helped him turn the corner. (laughs) (laughs) So here's what the Buddha said to this person. There are these four qualities that lead to a lay person's happiness and well-being in this life. Which four? Being consummate in initiative, being consummate in vigilance, admirable friendship, and maintaining one's livelihood in tune. And then he's going to go on and explain these four things. So consummate and initiative. There is the case where a lay person, by whatever occupation he or she makes their living, whether by farming or trading, cattle tending or archery, or as a king's man or any other craft, is clever and untiring at it, endowed with discrimination in its techniques, enough to arrange and carry it out. This is called being consummate in initiative. And what does it mean to be consummate in vigilance? There is a case where a layperson has righteous wealth, righteously gained, coming from his or her initiative, striving, making of an effort. Gathered by the strength of one's arm, earned by one's sweat, one manages to protect it through vigilance with the thought, how shall neither kings nor thieves make off with this property of mine, nor fire burn it? nor water sweep it away. No hateful airs make off with it. This is called being consummate in vigilance. And what is meant by admirable friendship? There is the case where a layperson in whatever town or village one may dwell, spends time with householders and householders' sons, young or old, who are advanced in virtue. One talks with them, engages them in discussion. One emulates Consummate conviction in those who are consummate in conviction or faith. Consummate in virtue, those who are consummate in virtue. Consummate generosity in those who are consummate in generosity. Consummate discernment in those who are consummate in discernment. This is called admirable friendship. And what does it mean to maintain one's livelihood in tune? There is a case where a layperson knowing the income and outflow of his wealth, her wealth, maintains a livelihood in tune neither a spendthrift nor a penny pitcher, thinking, thus will my income exceed my outflow. My outflow will not exceed my income, just as when a weigher or her apprentice, when holding the scales, knows it has tipped down so much or has tipped up so much. In the same way, the layperson, knowing the income and outflows of his or her wealth, maintains livelihood in turn. And then... He goes on and says, but, you know, maybe you want to be happy, not just in this life, but further on. Setting emotion causes for a deeper kind of happiness. He talks about consummate in conviction or faith, consummate in virtue, consummate in generosity, consummate in discernment. So these are the four qualities he was saying earlier you should look for in a friend. Now he's saying you should develop them in yourself. So faith means... Faith that there is something to do with this life beyond sensual enjoyment. He's never said that sensual enjoyment was bad. It's just limited. You know, no matter how good we get, no matter how fortunate we are, the enjoyment of sensuality is limited. We're never going to be completely in control. We can never make it last longer than it's going to last. And so... Faith means, you know, traditionally in a Buddhist setting you'd say you have faith in the Buddha's awakening. But what that really means is you have faith that there is something this mind, this mind, this heart can awaken to, can realize directly in this life, not theoretically, but actually, that will uh, lead to a safety or a satisfaction, a happiness that isn't dependent on whether we're having a good sensual experience or not, whether we're cold or warm, whether we're full or hungry, whether we're sick or healthy. Now, if we, this is the kind of thing that if a human being can conceive of this kind of happiness, a human being would want it. Because whether we admit it to ourselves or not, we're not very content with sensuality. Because on some level, again, whether we're conscious of it or not, we realize that it's unstable, it's moving, it's a, it's not a set thing. You know, already I'm I'm noticing problems with our renovation that we did. You know, and already you know seeing the new stove, the wear and tear in the new stove. You know, it's just two months, not even you no, know, maybe about two months now. So you realize that there's no stability in the comfort that we've created for ourselves. So we can uh, develop this faith that there's another way. And then that faith really helps us develop this virtue, like willing to restrain. Because it makes sense to be greedy when we think we can get away with it. It makes sense to be irritable when we think we can get away with it. Because it seems like it leads that sort of way of manipulating life and those around us. It seems like it's okay to play the power game. I can make you do what I want you to do because I have power. And that's what virtue is all about. It's like, are you gonna use your power because you can? Mm. You know, I I read uh, Glenn Greenwald, is that his name? Some of you know him, he's a well-known journalist. I'm not sure what, Salon.com maybe he's at. And, uh, <clears throat> but he said? And he's been publishing recently some articles about the hypocrisy of the United States around terrorism. You know, you probably heard that there are scientists and those around scientists in Iran that are being killed uh, through some kind of assassination project. And who knows where the United States is involved. <clears throat> but the point is that he was making was that the Western media doesn't call that terrorism. You know, it's targeted killings. Not terrorism. Even though these scientists are being killed and those around them who happen to be around them are being killed or harmed. And this is the... The thing about virtue is just because we have power, just because you can get away with something, virtue means you don't do it because... The mind understands what's being set in motion, even though we're not going to be sent to prison because we're smart enough not to get caught or smart enough to sort of shape it in a particular way. It doesn't mean that there isn't a consequence. So this is the thing about virtue. It, it understands the underlying principle. Like uh, Ruth Dennison says in her her second language English, you know, Honey, you don't get away with nothing. <laughs> Some of you know Ruth Dennison, she's a German, uh, originally from Germany, uh, teacher. I am um, Vipassana teacher. We don't get away with nothing. So this is where virtue comes from: the willingness to restrain from any kind of greed and aversion in the mind, because we realize we don't get away with nothing. It has consequences. Even though it might seem like throwing our weight around, we get some safety. We, we're just not taking a deep enough picture to look at what's being set in motion. You know, and whenever you try to say something like that to somebody or to a country, you know, there's always a lot of blowback about sort of being goody-goody. But see, it's not even about morality in that goody-goody sense, like you should be good. It's just about understanding how life works. That you can't be mean, you know, or who was saying, Paul Douglas was on the news on NPR, Minnesota Public Radio recently, he's a uh, meteorologist, and you t- you know, they were trying to be so politically correct, and, but he kind of let loose, I thought in a good way, just saying, you know, he told a story about his dad, who he says is more Republican, more conservative than anybody. And then he said, but my dad says, how can people think you can burn this much carbon every year and not have an effect on the weather (laughs) or the environment? You know, of course there's an effect. And so this is the same thing. How can we think we can be angry or greedy for so long and not have an effect? And it's so much in our business lives, work lives, around success. It's like greed and aversion just seem to go with the territory, like it's okay. And people, people have these arguments, well that's just how business works. But is it really? I mean, this is a question we have to ask ourselves. I'm not saying it isn't actually this way now in most settings, but does it actually work is the question. Mm-hmm. What really works in the world, whether it's business or personal relationships or international politics, What actually works in the long run? That's the question we want to ask. And then we want to act accordingly. Once we start getting direct evidence from observation, then it would be nice to live up to what we see. Does violence work? And then consummate and generosity, we've kind of talked about that. The Buddha says, there is the case of a disciple of the noble ones for awareness cleansed of the stain of miserliness living at home freely generous open-handed delighted delighting in being magnanimous responsive to requests I notice sometimes it's like wanting to avoid people so that they don't ask for something <laughs> you notice that in our minds it's like Sure, I'll be generous if they catch me. <laughs> but they got to catch me. <laughs> Delighting in the distribution of alms. This is called being consummate in generosity. And then finally, consummate in discernment. There is the case where a disciple of the noble ones is discerning, endowed with the discernment of arising and passing away. Now this is Buddha-speak. Buddha-speak for like discerning the arising and passing away. This is... Basically, having the insight into the inherent vulnerability, uncertainty, the underlying fabric of all experience is arising and passing away. But what it, the, actu- the uh, experience in the heart, when we open to it, is both liberating, but initially terrifying. Because it's, it's a seeing that there's no ground, no substantial, fixed ground anywhere in the mind and body because everything is a movement, a flow. Now, this seems to contradict our actual experience. But the Buddha would say, and and uh, seasoned practitioners will say, it's because we're not paying close enough attention. Things appear to be solid. My life appears to be solid. My body appears to be solid. The, lo- the life situation we're having appears to be solid because we're not paying close enough attention. Our mind is so distracted by distractions, that we're actually not seeing things as they are. And when we develop samadhi, that balance of mind, we start to see what the Buddha is talking is the fruit or the culmination of discernment, of wisdom, is seeing the arising and passing away. So you might even hear this in Buddhist circles. You know, have you had the insight into arising and passing away? Has the mind opened to how ephemeral and empty experience actually is. And it doesn't matter what the experience is like, whether you're opening to sound or opening to body sensation or opening to thought or opening to whatever. But it's, it's the experience that the idea of substance and solidity and permanence is a construction of the mind. It doesn't actually represent reality. But we're so in the constructions of the mind that life has the appearance of being substantive when it in fact isn't. So this is then what the Buddha taught, this lay practitioner who was only asking the Buddha to tell him how to be happy, how to get what he wants. And the Buddha said, yeah, this is what you do to get what you want, to be really happy, right? Good friends, um, having initiative, being vigilant. But, and then the Buddha says basically, but you really want to be happy in a more stable way. And so this is how you do that. And he mentioned that faith in awakening, faith in awakening, uh, consummate in virtue, not harming, consummate in generosity, letting go, consummate in discernment, discerning, the impermanent nature of all things. So this is just some background in the Buddhist teachings around right livelihood. Why don't we do some, uh, why don't we do a contentment and gratitude reflection now, and then we'll uh, break into small groups again after that. I'll give you something to reflect on, and then we'll break into a small groups. So you might want to stretch your legs. We've been sitting for a while. Feel free to stand up for a few minutes. And Kay, maybe turn the fan on again. Maybe actually the one on top, too. That will bring in fresh air for a few minutes. Just have a seat so you'll be relatively comfortable. Meditating on gratitude is really a meditation on joy. There's a famous (coughs) Cambodian monk, Mahagosananda. He did a lot of important healing work after the Khmer Rouge. Spent a lot of years in the, the uh, refugee camps in Thailand, and then eventually went back to Cambodia. And they do these walks along the, the, you know, jungle roads that had been mined, and they do mindful walks, uh, even though there are a lot of landmines still. This is a way to go through the fear that had been so deeply imprinted in people's minds. So anyway, Mahagosananda has this great line, if we cannot be happy in spite of our difficulties, what good is our spiritual practice? So we'll begin the gratitude practice, just hearing some words. These are from Jack Hornfield. Gratitude is a gracious acknowledgement of all that sustains us, a bow to our blessings, great and small, an appreciation of the moments of good fortune that sustain our life every day. We have so much to be grateful for. Gratitude is confidence in life itself, In it, we feel how the same force that pushes grass through the cracks in the sidewalk invigorates our own life. Gratitude gladdens the heart. It is not sentimental, not jealous, nor judgmental. Gratitude does not envy or compare. Gratitude receives in wonder the myriad offerings of the rain and the earth, the care that supports every life. As gratitude grows, it gives rise to joy. We experience the courage to rejoice in our own good fortune and in the good fortune of others. sitting and bringing awareness to the multitude of beings, human beings and other creatures that have supported this life in the past and are supporting this life now. it's absolutely true that without the support of life of other life we could not be alive now we're so tuning into this dependence this Interdependence on life for our life. We don't stand alone. In a very real sense, we can say, I belong to life and I'm grateful. Life gives life, and I'm grateful. We can remember with gratitude all the care, all the labor of those who came before, my relatives. this cultural stream that i'm part of i am the continuation of so much that came before genetically culturally we can actually feel this life as a continuation of our parents and grandparents and ancestors We can feel part, like it or not, of this cultural stream that informs this life, makes up this life. And even deeper streams, like the stream of mammals that we're part of, and life on this planet. So this life is the continuation of so much that's come before. Made up of earth, living on the earth, feeding on the earth. Receiving the cumulative wisdom, knowledge, from our ancestors. I'm grateful for all that's come before. We can be grateful for our relative safety now. Living in this safe place, (coughs) having shelter, however imperfect it is, we can be grateful for the warmth of our shelter, the protection it provides. Grateful for all the safety I'm experiencing now. Grateful that the heart, the body can relax in the safety. We can be grateful for the measure of health However it is now, certainly it could be worse. So we're grateful to be able to sit, to be able to breathe, to be able to digest food for health, to be able to feel and to think, to remember, Grateful for the functioning of this body. The great resilience of this body. May it be a vehicle for many good things. Wisdom and compassion. And grateful for all of our friends and family, for those who truly care about us, who support us, who comfort us, even our pets. our dear friends. and family gratitude for the community all the different larger families you're part of the common ground community and other communities maybe the community of your extended relatives maybe the community at work the Twin Cities. Grateful to be able to live with reasonable people most of the time. People who take turns who are willing to follow the rules. We can be grateful for all of this. we can be grateful for these teachings, for all the wise teachings we've come across, all the important lessons we've received in our lives. No matter the particular form that the lesson arose for us, Just grateful for the lessons that have been learned, the teachings that have been received. Grateful for this life, this mystery. And may this happiness, this joy of gratitude, may it continue, may it increase, And may it never end. And may it be a cause for true contentment. The willingness to let go of all neurotic striving now. In this moment, for this moment, it's okay to be content. It's as if we're opening a door to this possibility of contentment. With each exhalation, you might even repeat the word in a simple way in your mind contentment, the possibility of deeply trusting the moment, trusting it enough to relax, to be open and at ease. Feel free to stretch out your legs again. Could you turn the lights, uh, the top two lights, about halfway? Great. Thanks. Getting um, into the last hour now. <clears throat> what I was thinking is, for us to talk as a large group um, about some vision, and then to break in small groups again, and people could share, like how the discussions today, information today, how that inform is informing your relation to money, to wealth. Success, livelihood. And, you know, somebody mentioned earlier today about how, you know, the stereotype is, well, we're willing to bear it, we're willing to bear this, you know, having to deal with money, having to deal with livelihood, so that we can get enough put aside, and then, you know, we'll be free. There's a a funny story that I read about. This comes from Prosperity is God's Idea by Margaret Stevens. She tells the story in this book. There was a man who died and found himself in a beautiful place surrounded by every conceivable comfort. A white-jacketed man came to him and said, you may have anything you choose, any food, any pleasure, any kind of entertainment. The man was delighted, and for days he sampled all the delicacies and experiences of which he had dreamed on earth. But one day he grew bored with, it all, with all of it and called the attendant, attendant to him and said, I'm tired of all this. I need something to do. What kind of work can you give me? The attendant sadly shook his head and replied, I'm sorry, sir, that's the one thing we can't do for you. There is no work here for you. To which the man answered, That's a fine thing. I might as well be in hell. (coughs) The attendant said softly, Where did you think you are? Where do you think you are? And you know how it is, because, you know, when we think about happy people, generally we think about somebody like doing their favorite hobby. You know, Basically, they're working. <laughs> you know, whatever it might be, taking care of kids, you know, taking care of their kid, you know, that's their idea of happiness. Or, But, you know, there are a lot of people, that's their employment, is taking care of kids. So, uh, in our small groups, you know, I think it would be nice for us to get outside of any boxes we tend to fall into, any holes we tend to fall into about work. And try to bring a fresh look to work, whether you're working for money or just whatever you see or conceive of as your life's work or what you're doing now with yourself. Because it's, like I I read earlier when I, I read that section from the Dhammapada, life proceeds from our thoughts about it. So if we have this idea that life is a burden, it will be a burden, We've all experienced that. Now, there's a lot that goes around these days. Um, I forget what it's called, but, you know, where you kind of put out an aspiration um, envisioning money, you know, envisioning being wealthy or envisioning finding the perfect partner or things like that. So there's a lot in New Age circles about this almost magical ability we should have to envision something and that sets in motion causes that it's going to make it happen in our life. I think this can easily be misunderstood and probably is easily misunderstood because wanting to be wealthy is not a cause for wealth to come to us. Feeling that need to be wealthy is a cause for feeling needy. That's what it sets in motion. So it's not so simple as just like wanting to be wealthy. But there is something about what we do with our mind. It matters what we do with our mind. So when we're uh, reflecting on our life and reflecting on how to relate to the elements of life, like having to feed this body, having to clothe this body, having to take care of our family, protect ourselves having to plan for the future. I mean, that's that's not a non-Buddhist thing, planning for the future. It's whether we think we have to be afraid when we plan for the future or greedy when we plan for the future. It's not planning for the future that's good or bad. It's what arises in conjunction with that planning. It's not work that's good or bad. It's what arises in conjunction with our ideas of work that makes it wholesome or unwholesome. It's like that quote that the Dalai Lama often says or uses from Shantideva, this 7th century Buddhist monk. You know, if there's... And this is a a gross paraphrase. If there's something you can do about your situation, well, then do it. If there's nothing you can do about your situation, then there's nothing you can do. But in either case, we don't have to worry. We don't have to invest and unwholesome states of mind just because we're confronted with a problem in our life that we can either do something about or we can't do something about. So either there is something to do or there isn't. But why do we justify greed, anger, and delusion? So one of the things you might pull from when you're talking in your small groups, like when you're And I would literally uh, suggest that you paint a picture. And you might even want to paint two pictures in your sharing. So one picture could be sort of what you know is possible when your mind, in its particular way, gets addicted or caught up in uh, a narrow, constricted view. Basically, we get confused by the pain, the uncertainty in life. We take the pain and the uncertainty personally, And then we react with greed and aversion and denial to that pain that we've taken personally. So you can paint a picture of that beast, (laughs) that frightened beast who's frightened by being frightened, frightened by being hungry, frightened by being vulnerable to birth, aging, and death. In Buddhism, there's some provocative images like the hungry ghost. You might have even heard that term. But the hungry ghost is somebody with a huge appetite. So it's depicted as somebody with a big belly, but the throat or the mouth is so small, no bigger than a pinhole, that they could never eat, consume enough to get close to their appetite. So you can do the same thing as you're talking about the tendencies of our mind with each other, like how you know we could pull on times when we have become that hungry beast, that angry beast, that needy beast. You know, who of us can't remember a time in a maybe an intimate relationship or maybe in a family of origin or relationship where we were deeply needy, you know, in a way that maybe is really embarrassing to think about. But it's like we wanted from them something that they couldn't actually give us. But we, in a sense, desperately wanted them to make us feel better about ourselves or, you know, convince us that we're lovable or something like that, that we're worthwhile. But, of course, needing somebody to fill that hole makes the hole infinitely big. You know, just the fact that we need somebody to fill a hole means we're in bad straits. We've constructed a monster for ourselves. Our life is a monster. So this is one picture you can paint in your small groups. Then another picture you can paint pulling on the wholesome qualities you know about, like how generosity might arise in your heart, in your life, how virtue or wholesome restraint might arise in your life, how wisdom might arise in your life, energy or vigilance. You know, there's a couple of places the Buddha talked about vigilance or wholesome energy, patience. Truthfulness, loving kindness, gratitude. So these beautiful qualities, we all know about them. So we can pull on them. It's like we're painting a picture of what our life can look like around money, around livelihood, around success, where the heart is really free. And it's expansive. It's not heavy and entangled. It's light and free and nimble and responsive and beautiful and the thing is if we can start imagining it this is actually what helps grease the wheel this is how that law of attraction actually works is we we have to imagine the freedom we aspire to feel or live with we have to imagine or feel the quality of abundance we aspire to have but we have to feel it here and now Because if we imagine it out there, then what we're cultivating is greed. We're desiring that image we've created in our mind. But if we feel abundance, the abundance of love and the abundance of patience and the abundance of joy now, well, then we're going to be able to experience it later even if we don't have any good reason, right? And this is the whole point is that the happiness or the freedom we're uncovering is for no good reason because it's not about the conditions. Are we cultivating a happiness about conditions? We're doomed because nobody's in control of the conditions. Hopefully we've all noticed that. It's amazing how resistant our mind is to accepting that fact that we're not in control of conditions. Physical, mental, inside, outside, or outside, inside. (laughs) You are not in control of these conditions. We participate to some degree But basically, you know, we're living in this interdependent soup where we really have a place to participate is how we understand this, not in making certain things happen. You know, you guys do something to me, I'm going to feel defensive. I don't know if there's anything I can do to not feel defensive, but I can immediately understand that defensiveness. I can immediately be willing to feel the pain of that defensiveness. I don't have to take it personally. I don't have to build up this big thing that you're jerks and I'm right or something like that in order to defend myself from the pain of defensiveness. And that's a real relief. Other thoughts (laughs) about uh, this small group discussion? So why don't you take a few minutes and you might, in your own mind, in your own way, paint these two pictures, you know, where you're in that narrow, tight, entangled, beastly place where you're confused by the pain of life, confused by the uncertainty in life, acting out greed and aversion, and what that might look like in terms of your work life, in terms of success, in terms of wealth. And then another picture where you're freely engaging, open to the conditions of your life, not entangled, not burdened by them, but not needing things to be any particular way. And you want to paint this picture with all the beautiful qualities, imagining gratitude, kindness, patience, wisdom, strength or resoluteness, power, different wholesome expressions of power the ability to yield to be patient so the receptive power willing to let go willing to take a stand it so will take maybe 3 minutes 2 minutes just to reflect so you don't have to think when other people are sharing We'll count off by 12 again and let's start in a different place so we get different configuration for the groups maybe you could start counting <laughs> <One>. <laughs> but not everybody will be one 2, 3, 4 5, Five. Six. 6 7, 8 9, 10, 12 1, 2, 3 4, 5 Six. 7, 8 8 Do that? (laughs) Have we not done any? Has everyone got a number? Okay, good. So, what's your number? Nine. Nine will be in the office, and one and two in the community room, um, three, four, five, six in this room, seven and eight in the lobby, nine is in the office, ten on the white couch. Uh, 11 on the table in the workroom, under the community room, and 12 in the uh, uh, coat area downstairs. Good. Okay, so about a little less than 30 minutes, we'll come back. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org